Yesterday I was mentioning that <coughs> there are two trees, two family trees. One is the family tree of Adam and the other is the family tree of Jesus Christ. Romans 5 makes it very clear that people in Adam and in Christ. And we must understand that to be born again is to be born into another family, the family of God in Christ. That's why the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 All things have passed away. All things have become new. I've thought much about that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17. I mean, has everything become new? I mean, our bodies haven't become new. And uh, we find many other things in our life have not become new. What does it mean when it says, all things have become new? And I've come to the conclusion that it's the direction of my life that has changed. Completely. It's totally changed. I haven't reached the goal. Um, The goal is to be like Jesus completely and none of us have reached there. But everything has changed in this sense that I've turned around. You know, a person could be a prostitute, a drug addict, a murderer, adulterer. And in one moment when they turn around, I think Mary Magdalene, when she turned around, everything became new. In the sense that she was now, she was miles away from where she had to get. Or the thief on the cross, if he had lived a few more years on earth. He had turned around completely. That's what it means. A new attitude. The principles of the new creation. And we saw that the essence of the life of Adam is to seek one's own. And uh, in Jesus, um, he didn't seek his own. So when we think of the real Jesus and we think of, let's start with how it was in heaven. If Jesus had merely wanted to live a holy life, you know, a lot of Christians today Say, we want to live a holy life. I want to live a holy life. But we need to understand what the root of holiness is. Holiness is not uh, just inner purity and, uh, you know, dressing modestly and not going to the movies and many, many other rules. It's not that. Because if I seek a holiness like that, and if that was the holiness Jesus sought, he would never have left heaven. Have you thought of that? He was already holy. What was it that made him leave heavens? Comfort, glory, everything. Because his holiness consisted essentially of not seeking his own. A lot of legalistic holiness is a holiness that Make sure that I'm okay, my family's okay, and I, I want to live uh, something that sometimes brings a lot of honor to me. But Jesus, His holiness was such that He couldn't bear to see. Now, listen to this. He couldn't bear to see other people in such tremendous spiritual need and do nothing about it. I want to say that again. 
he could not bear to see other people in such tremendous spiritual need that's here on earth and do nothing about it. If you have a holiness which may be very modestly dressed, a very simple lifestyle, a poor home and um, you never go to the movies, you've got no television, you have um, no, you don't look at pornography and you brought up your children well and everything fine. But there are people all around in spiritual need and that doesn't bother you. That's not the holiness of Jesus Christ. That's the holiness of the Pharisees. We've got to see that. When we think of the real Jesus, He left heaven not to become holy. He was already holy. And His holiness, I, I want to repeat that Charles Finney used to say, unless you say something ten times, people haven't got it. So I don't mind <laughs> repeating something ten times because I'm not interested in just saying something. I'm interested in people getting it. That real holiness will make me concerned about people who don't have what I have. Did you get that? Who, that it will make us concerned about people who don't have what I have. Say if I have a wonderful family life with all my children born again and following the Lord and I see somebody else whose children are not following the Lord. You know what a Pharisee does? He says, Lord, I thank you that my children are all good and not like that family out there. That's a mark of a Pharisee. You know what Jesus would do? Jesus would go and do everything possible to bring that person's children to be like my children following the Lord. Which type of holiness do you have? The holiness of the Pharisees, which is totally unconcerned about other people, concerned only about oneself, or the holiness of Jesus. I have traveled to many countries, seen so many different groups who have various emphases on holiness. And I believe that a lot of their holiness has come from either from what they have seen in other believers or heard from other believers and there's been so little of going to the scriptures to see what Jesus was like. You know the ministry of the Holy Spirit? As I've studied through this Bible through 45 years, I have found one verse and it will help you young people and all of you. There's one verse that is the most complete, comprehensive description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit more than any other single verse I've found in the whole Bible. And if you keep this in mind, you will not be deceived by a lot of things that are preached today as this is the Holy Spirit, this is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I'm not, I'm not even shaken by these things. I'm not shaken by the things that I see on Christian television or that I see in crusades or reported in Christian magazines because I've seen the scriptures. A lot of Christians are confused because they haven't gone to the scriptures. Let me show you this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Now it's good to see these verses. The way I got to know the Bible was whenever anybody quoted a verse 
If I didn't know where, what it said, I would turn to it. I've done that for 45 years and that's how I got to know the scriptures. If I read a book and I found a verse quoted in brackets and I didn't know what that verse meant, I would put the book down, turn to the Bible, look up that verse, and then continue reading the book. I find 99% of Christians don't have that habit. And therefore, they, and then they complain at the end, oh, Brother, I don't know the Bible. Well, you'll never know the Bible if you're not um, a little more hardworking. You know that Jesus said to Adam, uh, God said to Adam, uh, How are you going to earn your bread? By the sweat of your brow. How are you going to get the spiritual bread? You've got to work hard. God doesn't give bread to lazy people, physical bread or spiritual bread. But I want to encourage you. The reason I say that is, not just to know, I mean the Pharisees knew the scriptures, but they didn't know it. Um, they knew it only in their heads. I want you to see the scriptures for this reason mentioned in this verse. Second Corinthians 3.18 With an unveiled face, now, the veil is um, something that hinders us from seeing the truth. It's, uh, if I were to take my handkerchief and put it on top of this Bible and try to read it, I wouldn't be able to read anything. And, and if you put a cloth on top of your Bible and try to read it, you can't read it. And, then the Bible say, and here it says, a lot of people are reading the Bible with a, with a veil over it. Um, it says here, in, whenever they read Moses, verse 15, there's a veil over their heart. They can't read it. It's like having a veil over my eyes and I can't read. And in those days, when, they, when he talks about Moses, that was the scriptures they had. The only scriptures they had was what Moses had given. Today we've got the whole Bible. The principle is this. To this day, when a lot of Christians, verse 15, read the Bible, there's a veil over their heart. They can't see what's written there. That's amazing. And, but when the veil is taken away, when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There's only one way for that veil to be removed. And that veil is a, a legalistic mindset. It's a, it's a mindset that looks for verses to find a technique in Scripture. It looks for verses to hit other people on the head with. And you just get into bondage and bring other people into bondage. But when you turn to the Lord, and this is the one verse in Scripture where the Lord, spoken of here, is not Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit. Uh, everywhere else, when it speaks about the Lord in the New Testament, it's Jesus. But in this one place, in the next verse it says, the Lord is the Holy Spirit that I'm talking about here. Verse 17. So, it, when you turn to the Holy Spirit... This veil is taken away. You'll get out of this legalistic mindset if you turn to the Holy Spirit when you read the Bible. But if you, don't, if you don't turn to the Holy Spirit and you don't honor the Holy Spirit in your study of the Scriptures, you'll go to the Scriptures with a legalistic mindset and you'll get it all wrong. Just like those Old Testament people. That's what produces Pharisees. But when you turn to the Lord, that veil is taken away, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Just like we sang, Jesus set me free. What all did He set me free from? He set me free from sin. He set me free from Satan. He set me free from religion and legalism. And He set me free from worldliness. And He set me free from judging other people. And He set me free from minding other people's business. And so many things. Has He done all that? 
Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We all, verse 18, now we understand it, without this veil, without this legalistic mindset, with a face that's turned to the Holy Spirit, let me paraphrase verse 18, with a face that's turned to the Holy Spirit and not trying to analyze scripture or judge other people with these verses, oh, the number of Christians who judge other people with scripture. That's a veil. You'll never understand it. Do you know that verse in Hebrews 10 which says um, about Jesus, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Have you read that verse? Maybe I should turn to that and show it to you before we come back to 2 Corinthians 3. It's a lovely verse. Hebrews chapter 10. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, When he comes into the world, verse 5, now we are trying to see the real Jesus when he comes into the world. Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. And verse 7, Behold, I have come. This is Jesus speaking. I have come into the world. And the role of the book, that's the Bible, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So when Jesus, he didn't have a physical Bible like this, but his Bible was, he'd listened to it in the synagogue. And when he heard it, you know what he heard written in the scriptures? Everything was referring to him. Not to other people. That's a wonderful way to read the Bible. Lord, everything I see here is written for me. It's not written for me to judge all the other people I see around me. You get out of this mindset. If you want, it, if you want the liberty and the joy and the freedom of the Christian life, get out of this mindset, this veil that makes you look at the Scriptures in this other way that maybe you've followed for so many years. We've got to break out of it. The Spirit of the Lord is to break us. When you say religion, Jesus set me free from religion, this is this religious mindset. This is a veil. But now, when this veil is removed, and I see in the Scriptures written of me, beholding as in a mirror, we come back to 2 Corinthians 3.18 now, with this unveiled face, we see in a mirror. Now that mirror, James chapter 1, I think it's verse 24 or 25, says that mirror is the Word of God. When we read God's Word, it's like a man looking into a mirror. So to paraphrase 2 Corinthians 3.18, it would be that we all with this legalistic mindset removed, with this veil removed, we look into God's Word, which is the mirror, and what do I see there? I don't see commandments. I don't see promises. I don't see verses to hit other people on the head with. I don't see verses to tell my wife, do you know the Bible says that you've got to submit to me, the husband? I don't see that. I don't see a verse where the wife replies, Do you know the Bible also says that you've got to love me as Christ loved the church? And all these arguments that go on at homes with people trying to quote Scripture to each other. I don't see any of those things. You know what I see in Scripture when the Holy Spirit, when I turn to the Holy Spirit, not to this legalistic mindset? I see the glory of Jesus. Have you seen the glory of Jesus in Scripture? You know, little, little things where you, where you don't expect to see it. I remember once seeing it when it says that uh, uh, people call Jesus the Prince of Devils, Beelzebul. And you know what he said? Have you spoken a word against the Son of Man? It's forgiven. 
what he was saying is, I want to paraphrase those words, the son of man. What he was saying is, I'm just an ordinary man. He who was almighty God walked on this earth and always, always said, I'm the son of man, son of man, son of man. I want you, next time you read that verse, read that expression, to paraphrase it. I'm an ordinary man. I'm an ordinary man. He was not an ordinary man. It's a bunch of ordinary men in Christianity who walk around acting like that they are God. But the one who was Almighty God when He walked on the earth, He called Himself an ordinary man and He lived like an ordinary man. I want to say to all of you, my brothers and sisters, no matter how much God uses you, no matter how much God blesses you, always remember you're an ordinary man. That's the glory of Jesus. And He said, have you spoken a word against an ordinary man? It's forgiven. And I saw the glory of Jesus there. I remember when uh, Miriam, Aaron's sister, spoke a word against Moses. I mean, she was 10, 12 years older than Moses. If Moses was 80, she was 92. And that's something, another thing I saw in Scripture, by the way, you know, when we were clapping and praising the Lord, uh, it says when the children of Israel uh, came out of the Red Sea, and they saw the Egyptians drowned there. They were so excited that this 92-year-old woman took a timbrel and started dancing and praising the Lord. Have you ever seen a 92-year-old woman with a timbrel dancing and praising the Lord? Because so excited that Jesus set me free. That'd be really something to see. But we've become so sober. Uh, yeah, Pharaoh was drowned. That's right. We're here. But Miriam wasn't like that. She probably saw all the others like that. She took a timbrel and got so excited and started dancing and all the others started following her. He's really excited. But anyway, Miriam criticized Moses and said, why did you marry this woman? It was none of her business who Moses married. But he criticized her and God got so upset with Miriam and said, how dare you criticize my... First of all, who somebody else marries is none of your business, Miriam. Just because you're not married, it's... You're worried about who somebody else married. You mind your own business, Miriam. And you know what she got for criticizing God's servant? Leprosy. Do you know what the Pharisees got for calling Jesus a devil? Forgiveness. And Jesus and the Lord asked me this question. When people hurt you, criticize you, do evil to you, what do you want them to get? Leprosy? All forgiveness. I said, that depends. And the Lord said, that depends on whether you follow me or follow Moses. I said, Lord, I want to follow you. When people hurt you, what do you want them to get? Forgiveness. I hope it is. This is the real Jesus. How do we have so many people who say they are following Jesus and they are wishing that some evil will come upon someone who hurts them? Some evil will come upon someone who's not like them, who's got some other group in some religious, some calamity hits some other religious group, we get excited about it. You're followers of Moses. Not Jesus. We haven't seen the real Jesus, you know. Because when we go to the scriptures, we're getting rules out of it. We're getting rules. We're not seeing the glory of Jesus. We haven't, this is the most comprehensive verse about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first thing the Holy Spirit wants us wants to do when He fills our life, 
is to show us the glory of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. In little, little passages like this which I just showed you. That when people hurt him, they didn't get leprosy, they got forgiveness. And when I see the glory of Jesus, it says, next thing the Holy Spirit does is, verse 18, He transforms me into that same image, being transformed. Now when it says being transformed, it's what somebody else does to me. It's not me transforming myself. See, that's the second mistake people make. Basically, two mistakes mentioned in this verse. First of all, when they read the Bible, they don't see the glory of Jesus. Number one, biggest mistake that lots and lots of Christians... How do I know? Because I made it myself for so many years. I'm not preaching from some pedestal looking down on people who never... uh, As if I never made any mistakes. I want to tell you, I was in the gutter. I made every single mistake any of you have ever made. But I learned some lessons from those mistakes. One of the biggest mistakes I made was... And and when I went to the scriptures, I didn't seek to see the glory of Jesus there. Some people go to the scriptures to prepare sermons. I finished with that. I'm not going to scripture to prepare sermons. Jesus did not study the Bible to prepare sermons. No. I did that for many years. I finished with it. I want to be like Jesus. And he never went to the scriptures to prepare sermons. He went to the scriptures to understand his Father's will. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. This is the trouble with the leaders of the five churches in Revelation. It says, uh, John, the Lord told John, tell those mess- messengers in that church and in that church and in that church. They were messengers to the churches. When it says angels, the word angel is really messenger. It's like that in all our in- Indian translations. Messenger of the church. Tell the messenger of the church, there's something fundamentally wrong with you people, with you. And they, why, why couldn't they hear the Holy Spirit telling that to them directly? For example, the messenger in Ephesus. Why couldn't he hear the Holy Spirit saying, Hey, you've left your first love. You don't love the Lord like you did 20 years ago. Why couldn't he hear that himself? Why did he need some other prophet to send a letter to him saying, Listen, the Lord says you don't love him like you did 20 years ago. Why couldn't the messenger in Sardis hear the Holy Spirit saying to him, you've just got a name that you're alive. You get up and preach and get a name as a great preacher and an elder in that church, but God sees you're dead spiritually. You're not walking with me. You don't have spiritual life. I know how things are going on in your home. I know how how you deal with your finances. You're dead. Why couldn't he hear that himself? He was not an Old Testament person. In the Old Testament, I can understand. You had to go to Elisha or somebody else to find out what God was saying. But he was in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on all people. God had said in the New Covenant, All shall know me. Why couldn't those five leaders of those churches hear what God was saying to them? Why did God have to send a message to them through a prophet? You know, when God cannot communicate with you directly, that's when He has to communicate with you through a prophet. There are lots of things God says to us through prophets, but those should be in addition, in addition to what God is already saying to us directly. We read in Acts, I'll give you an example of that. In Acts chapter 13, we read that um, the prophets gathered together to fast and to worship the Lord. And while they were fasting and worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I have already called them. That means Saul and Barnabas had already heard the Holy Spirit saying, 
something to them. And the prophets only confirmed to them what they had already heard. That's the way it should be. We thank God for prophets in the church. But those prophets should only be confirming what God's already spoken to you in your heart. But these guys, these five leaders, messengers and churches, they were not hearing what God was saying. And you know why? I'll tell you why. Because they were always preparing sermons for other people. They were always busy preparing sermons for their churches that they couldn't hear what God was saying to them. And it's the same thing with many, many people today. Very often we find that people are not able to hear what God is saying to them because they are busy finding fault with somebody else, criticizing somebody else, finding fault with this person, that person, the other person. I want to encourage you, when you come to the Scriptures, say, Lord, help me to see the glory of Jesus. And you know what happens when we see the glory of Jesus, when we see the real Jesus? Immediately, we see our need. And then, the second wonderful thing here, the second big mistake is, I told you the first big mistake, that we go to the Scriptures, and we don't see the glory of Jesus, but try to get messages for other people, or find what's wrong with other people. That's the first mistake. Don't ever make it again. The second mistake is, once we've got rid of that first mistake, we've come to Scriptures, we've seen the glory of Jesus. second mistake is that when we've seen our own need in the light of the glory of Jesus, we think, now we've got to try and change ourselves. Now I want to tell you right now, you can't change yourself. For 1,500 years, the Jewish people lived under the law and tried to change themselves and do you know what they produced? Pharisees. Self-righteous Pharisees who killed Jesus Christ. That's what you produce when you try to do it all yourself. That's what it means to live under the law. You can be as anti-Jesus Christ as the Pharisees were when you think you're the holiest person around. The Pharisees thought they were the holiest people around. But they were the worst people on the face of the earth. Because they killed Jesus Christ. The Romans didn't kill him. The Greeks didn't kill him. Pilate tried his best to release Jesus. Who was the one who wanted to kill Jesus? These people who studied the Bible. But they never saw the glory of God there. The whole Bible spoke about Jesus. Genesis to Malachi. If they had read Genesis, they'd see the seed of the woman. That's Jesus. If they see the ladder, Jacob's ladder that went up from heaven, that was Jesus. The serpent lifted up in the wilderness. That was Jesus. The Passover lamb. That was Jesus. Isaiah 53. That was Jesus. The son of righteousness. Malachi 3. Was Jesus. It was Jesus all the way in the scriptures. And when Jesus came into their midst, these guys who had studied the Bible from Genesis to Malachi called him the devil. Can you see how blind you can be studying the Bible? And there was that Roman centurion who had never read one page of the Bible. He said, boy, this is the son of God. How did he get that light? Which all these people who studied the Bible didn't get. That just shows how you can be totally blind when you go through Bible study. If you don't constant, if you don't allow the Holy, if you don't open yourself to the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, we live in a day and age where we have two extremes. We have some people who don't honor the Holy Spirit at all because they are so clever. They say, I've got the Bible, and I've got my commentaries, and I've got my concordance, and I can study, and I understand. And you'll get it all wrong. 
And then there are other people whom the devil has led to the other extreme of all types of fanaticism where they think Holy Spirit is all excitement and noise and emotion. And that's another extreme. And I want to tell you the devil is happy with both these groups of people. Because he's got one people at one extreme and the other people at the other extreme. This is a disease which I call pendulumitis. You know, some at one extreme, you know how pendulum swings. Some are, some people the pendulum is stuck here and some people the pendulum is stuck there. These are the mistakes. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms us into Jesus likeness. You cannot understand scripture without the Holy Spirit and you cannot be transformed into the likeness of Christ even if you try for a thousand years. The Jews tried it for 1500 years. Very often I find Christians are reading the scriptures to get a technique. Oh, I've got to do this now. And then if they see something else in the life of Jesus and say, I've got to add this into my life. This is exactly what Jesus spoke about. They've got this old garment and they come to a meeting and they get one patch called humility. Okay, I'm going to stitch this new patch onto this old garment. And then they go to another meeting and they hear about holiness and they got that patch onto the old garment. And they go to some other meeting and they hear about something else. Oh, I've got to I got a witness. And they put that patch on him. Here's a garment full of patches. And Jesus said, this is not Christianity. Throw away the whole old thing. You've got to get a completely new garment. And you can't produce it. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So here's the verse. The Holy Spirit shows you the glory of Jesus in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit transforms you into that likeness. We've got to submit to it. We've got to submit to it. And let God do that work. It's something like, you know, God producing a baby in a mother's womb. No matter how hard a woman tries, she can't produce a baby. God's got to do it. There are millions of mothers through the years, millions of women through the years who've tried so hard, never got a baby. It proves to us that it's God, children are God's gift. It's like that. I mean, if producing a child is a gift of God, Can you imagine something a million times more difficult than that, becoming like Jesus? You think you can do that on your own? They're trying to produce a child in a laboratory now. They say, well, we don't need God in all week. We can make a child in a laboratory. Do you think they'll ever succeed? Never. But do you know, for so many years, Christians have been trying to produce Jesus on their own. I think they're crazy. Just as crazy as these people trying to produce a child in a laboratory. You can't do it. When are we going to learn? We can't do it. We've got, it's got to be a miracle of God. A birth of a child being born in a mother's womb is a miracle of God. And the Holy Spirit alone can make us like Jesus. It's very important to understand this. That's why once you understand, Lord, my whole life is to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. This is new covenant life. So when we think of the real Jesus, we've got to start where up there. He was up there in heaven. That's where we start looking at Jesus. We don't look at Jesus healing the sick and that's many years later. Let's start with when he was up in heaven. What was it that made him come down to earth? We've got to start there. It was a concern for people who did not have what he had. Did you get that? I haven't said it the tenth time yet. It's about the fourth time. It's a concern for people who did not have what he had. This was His holiness. And when we have a little bit of that, and what did He have? 
He didn't have money there. He wasn't thinking of money. He wasn't thinking of all these poor people. They are living in such small huts. Let's get some better housing for them. Or they are driving old cars. Let's help them to get... There wasn't any cars those days. Any old carts or whatever it was. He wasn't out to get them better bullock carts. And No! What did he have in heaven? He had a life. He, there was something that was eternal. Bullock carts and houses he knew would perish. He didn't come to earth to teach people to have better crops and dig better wells and build better houses and live healthier lives. No! There was something heaven had. He knew things which are eternal. The life of God, the life of purity, of genuine humility, of love and compassion, and they didn't have it. And he said, I enjoy this in such richness. A life of perpetual joy, never being depressed and never discouraged. You know, like the angels in heaven. And he said, look at all these people on earth. They don't have it. I've got to get them to this light. And what will be the price for it? You'll have to go down. You'll have to suffer. Be called a devil. Spat upon. Treated badly. They, they won't value uh, you. They, even though you did so much for them, they won't value you. For 2,000 years they won't value you. They'll still follow religion. In spite of all the preachers that tell them to see the glory of Jesus, they are so stubborn, they'll still follow religion rather than Jesus. Are you willing, Lord, to go through all that? Sure, it's worth it. But Lord, the angels say, you'll get only a few people. Millions will just reject you. And even some who take your name will still follow religion. They won't follow you. It's still worth it, Jesus said, to get the few. You know, that's what the Lord's looking for. And I want to say he's looking for people like that right here. He's looking for those few who are gripped by his glory. And he came for them. He said it's worth it. Billions go to hell, but he still felt it was worth it to get a few people who'd be gripped by this wonderful life they have in heaven. That's what he came for. A concern for people and he was willing to pay any price to get it. When my holiness is something like that, I've got the real thing. But if my holiness just is concerned with my speech and my, um, the way I treat, I deal with everything right financially and I dress properly and I keep my home properly and I bring up my children properly, well, that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. It's much better than millions of other Christians. But I just want to say that is not the holiness of Jesus. That's all I'm trying to tell you. I hope we get it. That's not the holiness of Jesus. The holiness of Jesus had a tremendous concern for other people. It, and many times the Lord spoken to me. Do you want these people who listen to you to have the life that I've given you? I say, yes, Lord. Then don't try to impress them. Help them. I remember in my younger days, I wanted to impress people. And the Lord said, you'll never help them if you want to impress them. Do you know what is one of the biggest hindrances to God making us a blessing to other people? Because we try to impress them. I want to, uh, when we think about Jesus setting me free, will you ask Jesus to set you free from the desire to impress people? Boy, that will be a tremendous deliverance. To impress people with my holiness, or the way I dress, or the way I brought up my children. Are you guys impressed? I mean, we don't say it so crudely, but we expect it. Just finish with it. 
Jesus did not come here on earth to impress people. He came here to help them. And the Lord said to me, if you want to help them, stop trying to impress them. I said, sure. I don't want to impress anybody in the world. I want to help them. I want to help them to come to this wonderful life. A little bit of it, a little taste of it God's given me. And I see even that so many people don't have. For example, I've so many times had to talk to people about, do you know that Jesus was never in a bad mood? Never. He was under such tremendous pressure at times. Tremendous pressure. I don't think any of us have a remotest idea the type of pressures Jesus faced on earth. Every demon was after him. God exposed him to all the demons of hell. He let him live on earth as a man just like we are. And can you imagine how much the devil targeted him? I've seen the devil targeting God's servants who are faithful. I can imagine how the devil targeted Paul. But can you imagine how the devil would have targeted Jesus? The pressures he was under, but he was never in a bad mood. He never woke up in a bad mood. He was never in a bad mood if people disturbed him at any hour of day or night. This is the life of God. You cannot do it. You cannot produce it. Now we all admit we can't produce that. I mean even small pressures get us worked out. But there is a life in Jesus which God can give. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I want to say to all of you, my brothers and sisters, there is a life in Jesus far higher than what we have experienced. A life of rest in the midst of tremendous activity. Nobody worked as hard as Jesus did. But in the midst of it all, he was at rest. Inner rest. I mean, he may have been very busy in the carpenter shop doing so many things and um, all his six, his four brothers and two sisters teasing him and harassing him at home. And I can imagine how life was so much of pressure at home. He had four brothers and two sisters, we read in Mark 6. At least two, probably more. And none of them believed in him. Joseph was probably dead by then and Mary was the only one who believed in him. And he had all these younger ones ganging up against him for 30 years. Or at least for 20 years. Those younger ones, they grew up and he was in rest in the middle of that. He would never have a wrong attitude to them. How did he live that life? This is the real Jesus. It wasn't preaching. He wasn't just going around showing people how holy he was. No. Let me show you, when he come to, came to earth, what do we read about him? It says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, one of the first things, I think almost the first thing, written about Jesus in Luke chapter 2. You know, we saw, we're starting with how he came from heaven, why he came from heaven. We saw that already. Now, we, now he's come to earth, and what is one of the first things, you know, we're going from the kindergarten, when a person, when we send a child to school, we don't put him in eighth grade straight away. A lot of Christians try to jump to 8th grade and that's why they have so many problems. I want to encourage you to start at the kindergarten. Here's the kindergarten. The kindergarten is how, why did Jesus come to earth? Number one, we saw that. He came because he had a tremendous concern for people who did not have uh, what he had. And he wanted them to have it. And he was willing to pay any price for them to have it. That's holiness. When you're willing to pay any price for people to have what um, God's given you. I know many times the Lord's, uh, you know, I've looked at Jesus and I've seen 
how he called the Pharisees, you generation of vipers. I've never called anybody by those by such a title. You know why? Shall I tell you why? Because I don't love them as much as Jesus loved them. My love for them is much less. That's why I don't have the authority to call them a generation of vipers. Um, I've never turned around to a co-worker of mine and said, Get behind me, Satan! How dare you speak like that? Like Jesus spoke to his co-worker, Peter. You know why? I don't love my co-workers as much as Jesus loved. His love was so intense. And what the Lord showed me was that he had the right and the authority to speak like that because he was going to give his life for them. You think that you can speak like that. Ask yourself whether you're willing to lay down your life for them. If you're not willing to lay down your life for them, you don't have the authority to speak like that. And I say, I want to be honest. I say, Lord, I still discover areas in my life where I'm seeking my own. I'm sorry to say that. I'm working on it. But I'm not yet at the place where I'm willing to lay down my life for all these people and shed my blood for all these people. So I still don't have the authority to call them generation of vipers and get behind me, Satan. You know, there are young self-appointed prophets, self-appointed prophets, who get up and try to imitate Jesus. Oh, you generation of vipers and this, that and the other, you religious Pharisees and this. Just hang on. Ask yourself whether you're willing to give your life for them before you get up and try to imitate Jesus' words. It's easy to imitate Jesus' words. The difficult thing is to imitate His life. To follow His life. It's very easy to get up and preach like Jesus. You'll be the biggest Pharisee of all. It's compassion and love which motivated him, which brought him down to earth. And when he came to earth, Luke chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, in verse 40. Now, this is a very important verse. You probably never hear this message in any evangelical church or preacher, because I never heard it, and I've heard most of the great preachers in their books and many others in 45 years and I never heard anyone preach on this verse. What does this verse say? Jesus, the child, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. And it's this last part I want you to see. The grace of God was upon him. What he had over him was not a halo But the grace of God was upon him. Now the reason why I say this is a very important verse is because this is the first man who walked on earth upon whom the grace of God rested. The first man upon whom the grace of God rested. In the Old Testament you read that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But all that means is he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It does not say that the grace of God rested on Noah. No. Nobody in the Old Testament had the grace of God resting upon him because grace came, John 1.17, through Jesus Christ. Moses brought the law, but Jesus brought grace. And it says the grace of God rested upon Jesus. It's very important to see this. He was the first person who walked on the earth with the grace of God upon him. And he lived and overcame sin and overcame Satan and did everything he did on earth because the grace of God was upon him. 
Did you know that? As a child, the grace of God was upon him. And all through his life, the grace of God was on him. And that's how he lived the life he lived. Now that's very important for us to understand. Now grace is different from mercy. Mercy means forgiveness. God, Lord be merciful to me a sinner. Jesus never had to pray that. Jesus did not need mercy. Because he never sinned. You and I need mercy. But you and I need mercy plus grace. And Jesus had grace upon him. That's how he lived. Now a lot of people can't understand that. If I were to ask you this question, I mean, before you heard my message today, if I were to ask you, do you think needed, Jesus needed grace? I think most of you would say no. I need grace, but not Jesus. But yet it says the grace of God was upon him. Now what happens to us when the grace of God is upon us? Now I'll show you that. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, we see, Sin shall not be master over you when you are under grace and not under law. There are two types of Christians. Those who are under law and those who are under grace. And to be under law means, I'm struggling to please God. Like all those people tried for 1500 years. I hear some preacher say, this is what you must do. Okay, I'm going to struggle to do that. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to do it. You know, there are people who stir people to be missionaries. What are you doing there? Working, making money for yourself when there are heathen perishing out there in Africa and India and China. And a guy gets all con- uh, disturbed in his soul. He gives up his job in order to be a missionary. And he goes there and he's an absolute flop and a failure and comes back broken down and in a nervous breakdown. Why? Because God never called him. He got moved and stirred by some powerful person with a personality uh, with soul power, with human soul power. And there's a lot of it going on in Christendom today. Why were you sitting there and eating so much food? Look at all those poor people out there, hungry, starving. And you get all convicted and you send some money to them. This is not Christianity. It looks nice, but it's not Christianity. The father didn't turn to Jesus and say, What are you doing sitting here when all those people out there are dying on earth? He didn't go like that. And Jesus didn't tell his disciples, What are you fellas sitting here catching fish when all these people are dying out there in Africa and China and all that? He never sent anybody to China or Africa. This is all human method. This is the principles on which communism arose. Why are you there serving as slaves and under your masters when you can break free? You've got nothing to lose but your chains. Workers of the world unite. This is human. And there's a lot of that human psychological pressure upon people to become missionaries, to speak in tongues, to go out and give prophecies to people. Whatever comes to your mind, that's a prophecy. All this type of garbage that's going on in the world today. It can be in any area. You put pressure on people to do something and they do it. That's working, living under the law and it's a miserable life. And Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden with all these pressures that preachers have put upon you. Come to me. I don't put pressures on you like that. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
uh, take my yoke upon you, not the yoke that all these fellows are trying to put upon you, to do this and to do that and do the other thing. What a life living under the law. You've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to do the other thing and you've got to, then only God will accept you. And poor simple people like sheep, pressurized by all these people with all their psychological manipulations, Force people into slavery. There's a tremendous amount of slavery going on in Christendom today. Jesus came to set us free. And I tell you this. Don't ever listen to all these preachers. And you could find some of them arising in our midst too if you're not careful. In your church, wherever you are. Jesus left people free. He didn't use, you know, manipulation of his voice to try and um, get people to do something. There's a lot of that today. You know, move people. Now, now we're going to give the invitation and you ask the organist to just play something softly. So, and wh- while I'm praying, just keep playing the organ and uh, let's get all these people in a nice sentimental mood and come on, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Come on, come forward. Jesus never did it. Peter didn't did it on the day of Pentecost. He didn't get an organist there to try and move people to come forward. No. He had the Holy Spirit. And today, when it's because they don't have the Holy Spirit that they replace the Holy Spirit with music and pressure and psychological techniques and all this. And preachers have to get a degree in psychology now in order to go and preach properly. This is the tragedy. It is another Jesus. It's not the real one. Don't be fooled by all this. When grace is upon us, we're not under law. We're not letting anybody manipulate us or tell us how we are to behave or how we are to dress or how we are to do this or that. The Holy Spirit tells us everything. We're not under rules. We're under grace. And what the, wonderf- the mark of being under grace is sin does not rule over us. You, get, you suddenly get a power within to overcome anger and bitterness and unforgiving attitudes and love of money. And the Holy Spirit shows you selfishness. Now, don't get discouraged when you get light on yourself. You know, many people, when they, hear a, um, when they hear a message, they seek the Lord, and they suddenly get light on their selfishness, they get discouraged. I'm not discouraged, because I've discovered something through the years, which I'll tell you. The mark of God's blessing upon my life is that I get light on myself. The mark that I'm in the light is that I get light on myself. The mark that you're in the darkness is that you don't get any light on yourself. You're utterly selfish and you don't get any light on it. You're utterly uh, uh, proud and you don't get any light on it. You're rude and arrogant and you don't get any light on it. Boy, you're in the darkness, sure. These are the people who never apologize to their wives, never apologize to their husbands. Because they never make a mistake. They're like God already. But the rest of us ordinary human beings, we haven't yet become like Christ. We find we need to apologize pretty frequently. We're pressing on. Do you know what happened to Isaiah? I want to show you something. Isaiah chapter 5. I don't know whether you've noticed this. Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to this. This is a preacher. And what he's preaching is the truth. It's inspired scripture. Whoa, verse 8. 
Woe unto those who add house to house and join field to field. Verse 11. Woe unto those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Verse 18. Woe unto those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. You know, he's preaching hard messages to all these people. Verse 20. Woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21. Woe unto those who are wise in their own eyes. And on and on and on and on. You know what happened in chapter 6? It says, I saw the glory of the Lord. And you know what he says then? Verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me! Do you see a sudden change there? And when that happens to you, you know you've seen the Lord. Until then, you haven't seen the Lord. Everything you say may be absolutely right. Woe unto that Christian group. Do you know what all goes on there, brother? I'll tell you. Here are 25 things that happens in that group. And this other group, boy, you haven't heard the things which go on there. I read it in the papers and I read it there and somebody who was there told me this. Here's another 45 things about that group. And this other group, boy, that's the worst of the lot. Woe unto them and woe unto them. Everything down to the last thing may be absolutely correct. And then one day you see Jesus. What do you say? Woe is me. You're getting light. On yourself. Do you see the number of Christians in the world today who haven't seen the Lord? They have not seen the Lord. They've got a scripture. They've got a verse to hit that people up, that person on the head with, and the other person, the other person, the other person. But they haven't seen Jesus yet. And if you see Jesus, you'll see so much of, of yourself. And all that glory of yours will disappear. Your righteousness will turn into filthy rags. And you say, woe is me. And the moment he said that, this is a wonderful thing. It says the angel took a fire from the altar, verse 6, and touched my mouth with it, and my sin was gone, my mouth was on fire, and the Lord said, Isaiah, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8, Isaiah, now you're ready to go. And preach for me. Do you want to be ready? Do you want to be ready to be a witness for Christ? See the Lord first. And you'll see yourself. And you won't have so many woes on other people. And say, woe is me. That's why I say, the mark of God's blessing on my life is, I get light on myself. And the fire from heaven touches my mouth. Oh, that's what we need, my brothers and sisters. Have you, did you notice this little thing here? It's very beautiful in verse 6 and 7. These little things hidden in scripture. How did the seraphim take this burning coal from the altar? Did he take it with his hands? Have you read it there? Can you tell me? With tongs. Why? Because it was too hot for him to touch. But what was too hot for an angel to touch could touch the mouth of Isaiah. Isn't that beautiful? The fire of God which no angel can touch can touch me. And it can set me on fire. I need the fire of heaven. And I... I can't think of the number of times that I have wept and prayed before God 
Say, God, you can take away anything from my life, but don't take the fire away from my heart or from my lips. I want it to burn like it burned when I was a young man and I became a Christian. I'm 65 now. I want it to burn now. And if I live to the age of 90, I want it to burn even more. Pray that. If you don't pray it, if you're not earnest about it, if you're not getting light on yourself, you'll never get the fire on your lips. It's when Isaiah got light on his light that the fire came and cleansed his sin and prepared him, set his mouth on fire for God. And when your mouth is on fire for God, God will bring people to you. I've seen that happen so many times. I I love this lovely verse in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. There's some wonderful things written in Scripture when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to it. You suddenly see something. You've read it so many times, but you haven't seen it. You can read something and not see something. It says here, it's a wonderful verse, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. These are all the great men of the world. Tiberius Caesar. There's a big list of all the greatest men in the world at that time. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias. Okay, we got the list of all the greatest people in the world. Now the greatest people in the religious world. Annas, Caiaphas. And the word of God bypassed all these people and came to one man in the wilderness named John. I love that. It's happening today. The word of God bypasses all the great men in the world, bypasses all the great religious leaders and comes to some humble man seeking God in some wilderness. You can be that. I can be that. And when the word of God came to him, he didn't have to have any advertising campaign. Say, hey, I've got God's word. Come and listen to me. No. It says, people came to him from all the district around Jordan. Not because he was preaching prosperity. No. He was preaching repentance. How many people travel long distances into the desert to listen to someone preaching repentance? Imagine, God could do that. He can do it today. I believe God needs a ministry on earth today in many, many places, exactly like the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing people for the coming of the Lord. That's what he did. And the church is supposed to do the same thing today to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. If you want to follow a pattern of ministry, follow the pattern of John the Baptist. Living before God, caring for no man, seeking God's face, not interested in anybody's money or anybody's honor, willing to lose his head, telling a king you shouldn't have married that woman, somebody else's wife, things like that. He didn't want to lower his standard. He he lost his head and you may lose yours. So what? It's better to do God's will on earth and lose our head and go. And John was a young man. He was less than 33 when he died. Yeah, I believe God wants people like that. God wants you and me to be like that. When Jesus came on earth, the grace of God was upon him. That's what we saw in Luke chapter 2. And when the grace of God was upon him, he lived under that grace all through his life. We saw how he began. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. The grace of God. Now let's see how he died. Okay? We come to the end of his life. We saw how he began in Luke 2, 40. Let's turn to Hebrews and chapter 
<clears throat> We're trying to see the real Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, it says here, verse 9, We do see Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for every man. How did he die? How could he go through that cross? By the grace of God. How could he endure all that he endured on Calvary? By the grace of God. So we saw the beginning of his life in Luke 2.40. We saw the end of his life in Hebrews 2.9. That was by the grace of God and this is by the grace of God. And all those 33 and a half years in between... The grace of God was upon him. And the good news he gives to us is... You know what it is? Let me turn to you. Turn you to Zechariah chapter 12. That's a prophecy about this new covenant age. Zechariah was one of the last prophets in the Old Testament. And he preached a wonderful message about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he said it would happen in Jerusalem. None of the earlier prophets said it so clearly as Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. And he defined the Holy Spirit. Isn't it good to get a definition of the Holy Spirit? He, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace. That was the prophecy. Nobody could have it in the Old Testament. But the same Spirit that brought grace upon Jesus' life was now to be poured out on those who were waiting for the Lord on the day of Pentecost. It was poured out on them the Spirit of grace and supplication. Now I want to define that. Supplication means it's more than prayer. Specific request. Prayer would be Lord, bless me. Specific request would be, Lord, please open my blind eyes. It's a specific request. Lord, bless me is a general prayer. Supplication. Lord, and persistent. I want this, Lord. I want, pour out your spirit on me. I want the gift of prophecy. I want to serve you. And a supplication to cry out to God. God's going to give me the Holy Spirit to make me cry out to Him, to make me dependent on Him. For everything I do. That's the type of life God wants to give me through the Holy Spirit. A, a, a life which is dependent on Him. See, supplication uh, shows a picture of a man. It's, it's a picture of a man who is helpless. I mean, it's used in Old English about poor beggars who go to kings and supplicate the king saying, Please, have, really, can you do this for me? God's going to pour out on me the spirit of supplication. Oh, my Father in heaven, do this for me. And all the time. And when the Holy Spirit is poured upon you, it's the spirit of grace and supplication. Everything that you need, my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But it comes through supplication. And the Holy Spirit comes within us to make us supplicate like that. To pray and ask and ask and ask. And to get it. 
Is there a need in your life, a spiritual need? Is there a place where the devil sort of got a foot into your home or your church or your life? Supplicate. Let the Holy Spirit supplicate through you. God wants to set you free. This is how Jesus lived. That's why he went often to the wilderness to pray. He lived that life of dependence on the Father. Prayer was not a ritual to him. He wasn't praying by the clock. Lots of Christians pray by the clock. And you read books of these people who spend so many hours in prayer and so many hours in prayer and so many hours in prayer and we've read so much of it that we think spirituality is to spend so many hours in prayer. It says only once about Jesus that he spent all night in prayer and that's he probably spent many nights in prayer. I don't know. But it says only once about him because that was not they, they didn't measure prayer by the clock in the New Testament times. This is a subsequent Christian tradition. Oh brother, he's a holy man. He spends four hours in prayer. I'm not impressed by this. I've seen some of these holy people, some of the most difficult people to get along with. They don't impress me. To Jesus, prayer was like breathing. You breathe for four hours a day? Oh brother, he breathes for four hours every day. <laughs> But Jesus, prayer was like breathing. It was... Uh, were you conscious before I started speaking about breathing that you're breathing right now? And now when I tell you, aren't you breathing? All of you suddenly became conscious that you're breathing. But before I said it, what were you doing for the last 45 minutes? Or one hour? You're breathing without knowing it. That's how Jesus prayed. It was part of his life. His breathing. And the more we become like Jesus, the more prayer will be like breathing. When prayer is a strain, have you seen people with asthma? <gasps> this is, they have a problem. It's not normal. And when people have to, have a difficulty to pray, they've got asthma, spiritual asthma. It's not normal. You've got to get over it. You've got to be healed of it. We've got to see Jesus. The real Jesus delivers. Do you know who prayed and impressed people with their prayer? The Pharisees. Do you know who fasted, tried to impress people with their fasting? Pharisees. Jesus fasted. Pharisees fasted. But there was a world of difference between the two. Jesus prayed. The Pharisees prayed. There's a world of difference between the two. You need to ask yourself whether you're praying like the Pharisees or like Jesus. Whether you're fasting like the Pharisees or like Jesus. And it's very subtle. If you're very conscious of it, how much... It's like a man being conscious. Well, I breathed about 10,000 times today. Did you know that? 10,000 times. Don't you think I'm a great guy? I breathed 10,000 times today. That's how the Pharisees, very conscious of what they were doing and how much they prayed and how much... I, I remember when I was a young Christian, I didn't know this difference. And I said, boy, I've got to spend all night in prayer. And I got down on my knees. I was working in the Navy on a ship. And I said, I'm going to endure through this. And um, time was moving so slowly. It was <laughs> I thought it was morning. It was still 10 o'clock at night. Oh, I got... <laughs> I was determined to go through it. Oh, it's still only midnight. <laughs> Finally, I got through it on my knees and I had accomplished it. It was like climbing Mount Everest. I had done something. Do you think that was even remotely like Jesus praying? On It wasn't anywhere near it. It was a Pharisee. I was trying to get, get through a feat. 
and be proud of it? No. Let's see the real Jesus. For him, prayer was an expression of his dependence on the Father. Father, I can't do this without you. Another thing about Jesus praying was, I think a lot of Jesus praying was listening. Prayer is like speaking on a telephone. Now, the telephone has got a mouthpiece and a earpiece. You listen and you speak. Now, what would you think of me if I were on a telephone and I was speaking, 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 speaking for one hour? You'd say, well, the other guy at the other end of the line must be some unimportant fellow because Zach's speaking to him for one hour. He doesn't give him a chance to talk. But supposing I spent one hour and I spoke about two minutes and I listened. Yes. Oh, thank you, brother. You think, boy, that other person at the other end must be a very important person whom Zach respects a lot. And you could just get, get that just by listening to me on the phone. How do you pray to God when you spend one hour? How much have you spent listening? Okay, let me ask you to put it another way. When you are talking to a really godly person who you know is a hundred times more godly than you are, would you talk more or would you let him talk more? There's no catch in this. Very simple answer. <laughs> I'm not asking what young people today do. Young people today are so arrogant and proud. They think so much about themselves. They probably talk a lot. But I'm talking what is a normal thing for a humble person to do. I think he'd talk more. I think he'd listen more, not talk more. He'd let the other person talk more. What do you think if you're talking to God Almighty Himself? You think you should listen more or talk more? What do you think? What do you think is a sensible thing? <laughs> I discovered it was listening. What am I going to inform God about in any case? Which He doesn't know. Lord, did you know about this, this other thing over here and the other thing over here? I need to listen. The major part of Jesus' prayers, and this will revolutionize your prayer life, if you hear me saying it ten times, I've said it only once so far, that you've got to listen more than you speak. Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Have you read that in James chapter 1? Especially when we come before God. Have you read this other verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 2. Don't be hasty in word when you come before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So then how do I spend a lot of time in prayer? By listening. How do I spend one hour on a telephone if I've spoken only for two minutes? Listening. What did Jesus do in his prayer time? Isaiah chapter 50. We're trying to get a picture of the real Jesus now. Isaiah chapter 50. Verse 4. In the middle of that verse. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain a weary one with a word. In the middle it says, He wakens me up morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen. As a disciple. And when I heard, the Lord God opened my ear and I was not disobedient. 
And thus, I got a word, in the middle, first part of verse 4, to sustain those who came to me who were weary. I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by a world full of weary people. And we need to have a word from God for them. And you are not going to get a word from God for them if you don't develop the habit of listening. Jesus, who was the Son of God, who came to earth, was made like us in every way, needed to do that. Every morning, it says God woke him up. That's great. I want God to wake me up morning, in the mornings. To do what? To listen. First of all, to listen. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. If Samuel did that as a child, you can be pretty sure Jesus did it as a child too. Speak, Father. I'm listening. I'm listening. And he listened so much that suddenly, unexpectedly, when some person with a weariness came across his path, verse 4, he had a word for that person. That's how Jesus lived. All the Pharisees came once to stone a woman to death. Jesus was listening, not to the Pharisees, he was listening to God, the Father. The Father said, just tell them one word. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. Solve the problem. You know, many problems in your life can be solved if you spend a little time listening. Many problems in your home can be solved if you spend more time listening. Instead of explaining all the detailed problems to God, which He already knows. Spend a little more time listening. Listening. Oh, for 40 years of my life, more than 40 years, God has spoken one word to me. Luke 10.42 One thing is needful. What Mary did. You know what Mary did? She sat at Jesus' feet and listened. You know what Martha did? She was busy running around doing things, not for herself, but for the Lord. And Jesus told Martha, you're worried about so many things. One thing is needful, what Mary has done. Listen to me first before you run around doing things for me. I remember once on my birthday, some years ago, I said, Lord, do you have a word for me on my birthday? And the Lord said, listen to me. Next year, I said, Lord, do you have a word for me today on my birthday? It's the same as last year. God's helped me to that one word for more than 40 years. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I want to encourage you to listen. Because when you listen and listen and listen and listen to the Holy Spirit showing you the glory of Jesus in Scripture, you'll have something to tell other people which can help them. You may not impress them, but you'll help them. What a need there is. This is how Jesus lived. He lived on earth with the Spirit of grace and supplication upon Him, listening, Father, I don't know what to do. Please tell me what to do. Once we read, he went out early in the morning, even though he was helping people till late at night, he went out and the father said, go there. And all the people came to him and said, Lord, we need you here. He said, no, I'm going. No matter how much pressure they put on him, he was going. Because he had heard his father. That's how he lived. And that's how he wants you and me to live. It's the best life you can ever live on earth. There's no strain, there's no tension. There's so many pressures on earth. Don't you... I mean, many of you mothers with seven, eight children, you must be having so much pressure. I realize. Do you believe Jesus faced less pressure than you? Much more than you. But His life was a life of rest. 
I'm not saying that he didn't have pressures. You have a lot of pressures. We have different types of pressures. But in, in, underneath it all was a life of rest. Seek to enter into that. That comes by listening. By developing a habit of listening while you're feeding your baby, while you're cooking your food, while you're traveling. To develop this habit of listening, listening, listening. And to listen to Jesus more than to listen to the accusations and pressures of preachers use psychology on us and criticisms and everything. Listen more to the Father. That's how Jesus lived. That's why he could forgive people who called him the devil. Because he listened to the Father more than what they said. What does it matter what people call you the devil? He knew what the Father thought of him. That's all that mattered. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads before God. Heavenly Father, help us to listen. We're such busy people. We live in a world where everybody's so busy, running from here to there, doing this, that and the other the whole day. And we thank you for giving us an example in Jesus whose life was busier than any of us, ours could ever be. And you had time to listen. Because in the midst of everything he did, he was listening. And I want to be like that. We all want to be like that, Lord. In the midst of all the pressures of life, we want to be listening people. We want to see the real Jesus. We want to see how he lived on earth in simplicity. Give us grace to go that way, Lord. That we can help needy people around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.